Last night we ended with chapter 1, verse 5, the core of the message, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What follows immediately is the list of entailments that John sees falling out of that. So God is light. So what? What are the entailments? He lists three of these, and then he follows that up with some encouragement and warnings. That's the flow of where we're going this morning. That is to say, the entailments of the message, and then some encouragements and warnings. So, what are the entailments? The, the things that flow out of the truth that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Three things. Number one, the nature of salvation by Christ. The nature of salvation by Christ Chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 2. That is, John talks about salvation that flows from the truth that God is light, what it means, and he does so by raising three false claims and then answering them. And probably these false claims were the claims that the opponents were actually making. But John quotes them, as it were. He raises them to public view, and then he says, but wait a minute, that doesn't work. What are those three claims? First, the claim to have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, verses 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. In other words, that flows from the fact that God is light. If God is light, understood in a metaphorical sense, no doubt, but if God is light, and meanwhile we ourselves live lives that are shrouded in darkness, then Our claim to know God has to be false, for in him is no darkness at all. This ethical use of walk, we walk in darkness, is very common in the Bible. The principle here, however, is of fundamental importance. Biblical Christianity embraces all of life, religious experience, daily conduct, some sort of mystical awareness of the presence of God, and genuine morality, faith, and ethics. In biblical Christianity, these things are inseparable. So those who talk largely and widely about their spirituality but don't see any entailment in terms of how they live are just miles outside the camp of any biblical Christianity which begins with the proposition God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In other words, the test here is not verbal profession. The test here is not Christian orthodoxy. After all, the devil himself knows about Christian orthodoxy. He knows those things are true. Doesn't make him no longer the devil. No, the test, rather, is behavior. And that point is made again and again and again in Scripture. Proverbs, Psalms, Isaiah, again and again. We read texts like this. The boastful shall not stand before you. You hate all those who do iniquity. Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 66, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah 59, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? The same sort of metaphorical use of light as here. So, this is a false claim. We are lying, the text says. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. That is, we are not conforming our speech to genuine reality. What then is the biblical answer, the repost to this false claim? Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, still playing on this light metaphor, 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So walking in the light means we have fellowship with one another. I suspect here that fellowship with God is presupposed. We have genuine fellowship with one another because each of us has fellowship with God. Whereas if neither of us has fellowship with God, it's unlikely we're going to have a lot of fellowship with each other too. That is a joint commitment to a shared enterprise under the Lordship of Christ. And we're told the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now that's interesting on all kinds of grounds. The wording is important. The blood of Jesus, his Son, which brings us back to the truth claim. The blood of Jesus, the man who actually is God's son, over against proto-Gnostic claims that somehow the son merely rested on Jesus for a while or talked through him or the like, but did not actually become him. But now it's the blood of Jesus. Blood is a very physical thing. The blood of Jesus, God's son, that is his death. Not talk of knowledge of God, not gnosis, but The event of the cross, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, is what actually purifies us from all unrighteousness. Now then, that presupposes that John still recognizes that sin remains. In other words, John recognizes that Christians do sin. He does not say, If we claim to walk in the light, we must be sinlessly perfect because then he could not add the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin because we would be perfect and wouldn't need any cleansing from sin. So John is caught in the tension that I mentioned last night between the need on the one hand to say Christians don't sin, we don't do that here. And on the other hand, this is the way we handle sin, namely the blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all unrighteousness. That tension, we'll see, works out in this book again and again and again. Christians deal seriously with sin. They hate sin. They recognize that sin keeps them from fellowship with the light. And as a matter of orientation and principle, Christians walk in the light. Yet at the same time, Christians also, because they tell the truth about themselves, recognize their own sin then what do you do with it? Pretend it's not there? No, no, no. It's the blood of Jesus, God's Son, His substituted death. The death of the Son of God made man who purifies us from all our wickedness. Now, he'll come back to explain how that happens a little more. Well, the second false claim. Now somebody comes back and says, yeah, but we have no sin. You, you say, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Yeah, but I claim, I claim that I, I, I am in the light. I, I don't have any sin. So, so, so you, why are you jumping all over my case? But John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What he's really saying is, come off it, you guys. You're kidding yourself. You are self-deceived. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't live at a time in the history of the church now when a lot of people claim to be sinlessly perfect. 
But that notion has risen and fallen in various periods. In the 19th century, in Great Britain, it was very common to meet people who preached sermons that were literally titled Sinless Perfection and How I Achieved It. Now, from our perspective, that just seems a wee bit bizarre, but, but it, 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 it was not uncommon. You find it in little pockets nowadays, but not very commonly. Spurgeon, in one of his lectures to his students, um, actually uh, displayed a side of him that uh, is not so well known. At one of these Baptist conferences in Britain in the middle of the 19th century, Spurgeon listened to a man in the afternoon session preaching away on, on how he had achieved sinless perfection. And everybody knew this chap had a bit of a nasty temper and was a bit supercilious and so on. And in the subsequent discussion, much to the surprise of Spurgeon's students, Spurgeon didn't say a word, didn't offer a single biblical rebuttal, not a word. And the next morning at breakfast, he came up behind this chap who was seated at table, and he poured a pitcher of milk over his head. (laughs) The man got up and swore and was very angry and called him all sorts of abusive names and so on. Spurgeon simply smiled and put down the pitcher and walked away. Now, as a pastoral technique, I do not recommend this. (laughs) But nevertheless, it was pretty effective. Um, you know, if, if I were to claim sinless perfection, uh, all you'd have to do is have a chat with my wife to, uh, to, dis- to discover pretty clearly what a filthy liar I am. Um, th- those nearest and dearest to us know all of our weaknesses and foibles and inconsistencies and, and uh, ball-faced self-deceptions. John wants you to be honest with your sin. He does not say... Okay, since we have to be sinlessly perfect, therefore, try your best, try your hardest, and then for the rest, just cover it up as much as possible. Pretend it's not there. No, he doesn't say that. He says, rather, the solution to this false claim, verse 9, if we confess our sins, that is, not hide them and claim to be without sin, but if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confess our sins, plural, not just our sin. That is, our confession extends all the way down to individual sins. Confession includes descent to particulars. Conscience does not deal with mere abstractions and generalities. We think of particular sins and confess them. And Christ will forgive us our sins. Why? Why will Christ forgive us our sins? What does the text say? Is it because he's soft-spoken and quiet? Is it because he's gentle and loving? Is it because he's forbearing and kind? I'm sure all those things are true, but that's not what the text says. It says, he is faithful and just. How does the justice of Christ guarantee that he forgives us our sins? One would have thought that the justice of Christ would instead guarantee our punishment. Unless you already understand what has been established in the previous couple of verses. It's the blood of Jesus, God's son, 
that purifies us from all unrighteousness. If Christ has, in fact, died for us, his people, and he knows this, then it is just for him to forgive us our sins. It is faithful of him, faithful to the covenant, faithful to the promises that he made to his own father to accomplish the father's will, to forgive us our sins by his own substituted death on our behalf. The reason why Christ is faithful and just in the forgiveness of our sins is because he knows full well that he has offered himself before God, before his heavenly father on our behalf. He is faithful to the covenant that he himself has sealed in his own blood. Justice has been met by his own substitution for Christ's own people. It would be unjust of Christ still to condemn condemn us if Christ has, in fact, paid the sin for us. So that's the second false claim. But there is a third. Verse 10. This, again, is the claim that we have not sinned at all. We have committed no acts of rebellion. If we claim we have not sinned, not only, verse 8, have we deceived ourselves, but now, verse 10, we're making God out to be a liar. Because the Bible insists that God declares that we are sinners, that we have sinned, and that we do sin. There are so many, many texts along this line. Isaiah 53 All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned the other to his own way. In Romans chapter 3, from from verse 9 on, there is a, a list of texts from the Old Testament that talk about our sinfulness. So if instead we come along and say, yeah, but I'm not really all that bad, and actually I'm really quite good, and I'm, I'm, I'm really not sinful, I, I haven't sinned for the last year or so, um, whatever. Eventually, we're not only kidding ourselves, we're actually calling God a filthy liar. We can be so blind to our own faults that at the end of the day, we end up accusing God. Now, the problem is, of course, that when you keep saying this, when you keep saying Christian sin, Christians do sin. Christians commit sin. You say it often enough, and pretty soon Christians may go away thinking, oh, well, if you're going to sin, you know, it's inevitable. Um, Why should I flagellate myself because I sin? The Bible says I'm a sinner. I go, okay, I'm a sinner. I I believe it. And, and, And therefore feel no conscience about it, no guilt, no resolution not to sin. That's the danger of constantly saying that Christians sin. And John recognizes the danger, which is why he goes on to say, chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. In other words, I'm not writing that all of us sin in order to make an excuse for sin, to give people a way out and not feel guilty. I'm really writing this to you so that you will not sin, especially so that you will not sin in pretending that you don't. No, 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 no. But if we do sin, and he's just finished saying that we will, if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. There's that Jesus Christ link again. Jesus, the man, Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he's an advocate with the Father. This is the same word that Christ uses to refer to the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. Do you recall? 
Jesus promises that when he goes away, he will send another one, a comforter, some of our versions have, a helper or an advocate. The word is parakletos in Greek, someone who is called alongside to help. But often the one who is called alongside to help is, is, is like a lawyer who is called alongside to help, someone who, who helps in, in charging the wicked or in defending those who have been accused he is the one who is called alongside to help. Sometimes the way he helps, in other words, is in a, is in a kind of uh, legal sense. And hence some translations render this here um, an advocate. Some versions have counselor. And then the danger is that we think of a camp counselor or something like that. Uh, but counselor in a legal sense. Someone who is called alongside to help, that's not a bad translation, except it suggests somebody who is going to sort of tuck you in at night or give you a sweetie or, or help carry a burden, and that's not quite right either. The word has broad possible application. Here in this context, what it is saying is, you are under the condemnation of God because of your sin. But we have someone who stands in as our lawyer who speaks for us. He is our advocate. He is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. One of the great hymns of the faith that captures this was by John Wesley. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, O oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed son. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, and Abba, Father, Abba, cry. So that's the advocate work of the Son, his high priestly ministry, his intercessory role, his mediation role that is grounded in the fact that he is not only our priest, the go-between, or our legal counselor, the advocate, but he's also the sacrifice. He himself is the sacrifice. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now then, our English Bibles, depending on which one you have, use different words here for propitiation. Some have expiation, some atoning sacrifice. One has remedy for defilement. Exactly what is at stake? The King James Version, the authorized version, which a previous generation was inevitably brought up on, had propitiation. So that was the word commonly used in the English language until fairly recently, about a century ago, a little less. But, of course, in some languages, there is no word for propitiation. In, in, in French, for example, there is no word for propitiation. And they use um, expiation, expiation. Um, uh, what, what is at stake in, in, in the difference? In propitiation, the object of propitiation is God. Propitiation is a sacrifice in which God is propitiated. That is, he's made propitious or favorable. 
The assumption is that he stands against us in some way or another. And in a sacrifice of propitiation, he's made to stand for us. He becomes favorable towards us. He becomes propitious. In the pagan world, not the Christian world, in the pagan world, many of the sacrifices that are offered are propitiating sacrifices. So, you're going to make a sea voyage across the Mediterranean in the first century. You offer a sacrifice to Neptune, the god of the sea, to make the god favorable, to propitiate him. It's a propitiation. It's a propitiating sacrifice. Then when you get to your destination, Rome, in order to give a great speech before the Senate, you want now to have the god of communication on your side. So you offer a sacrifice to Hermes in the Greek world or Mercury in the Roman world, the god of communication. And you offer a sacrifice there too because you want the god to be propitious toward you, favorable. So it's a propitiating sacrifice. Now notice, in this case, in the pagan world, I, the worshiper, offers the sacrifice, the propitiation, to the god in order to make the god propitious. But in the 1930s, there was a... Uh, a Welshman by the name of C.H. Dodd, who had made profession of faith in the Welsh revival of 1904-1905. But then his theology became progressively more liberal, and he came to dislike the notion that God stands against us in wrath or judgment and has to be propitiated. And he pointed out something that's rather obvious, he thought. In the pagan world, we, the sacrificer, the worshiper, we offer propitiating sacrifices to the gods who are bad-tempered and a bit whimsical in order to gain their favor, to make them propitious. But how can you say that this works in the Christian way of viewing things? God offers Jesus to be a sacrifice. God offers him. He made him to be a sacrifice. But if God is so favorable to us, that he gives Jesus to be the sacrifice, if he's already so favorable that he gives Jesus to be the sacrifice, how can Jesus be the sacrifice that makes him favorable? God so loved the world that he gave his son. If God already loves the world enough to give his son in the first place, then how can the son himself be the one that actually wins God's love in the second place? It, It doesn't make any sense. So he says what is really an issue in the Christian way of looking at things is not propitiation, but expiation. Now, expiation is a little different. In propitiation, the object of the sacrifice is God, or in the pagan world, the gods, to make them propitious. In expiation, the object of the sacrifice is sin. That is, you offer the sacrifice in order to cancel sin. You expiate sin. You wipe it out. So God may well be thought of then as offering the sacrifice of Jesus to cancel sin, but surely not to propitiate himself. How can you propitiate yourself? He answered. And that convinced many, 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 many people in the English-speaking world from the 1930s on that propitiation was the wrong translation. It had to be expiation. Dodd himself kept moving left. And eventually he hated the notion of expiation too. So that in the New English Bible, which, of which he was the editor-in-chief, um, they used the expression, remedy for defilement. Can't even use the word sin, it's defilement. And it's remedy, and it's a bit like aspirin. The cross now is sort of spiritual aspirin. 
It's, so it's got more and more dilute. In fact, in the 1950s, when as editor-in-chief of the New English Bible, he was working through this Greek text with a translation committee, he was heard to mutter under his breath as he worked through the Greek text, what rubbish this is. Whereupon someone on the committee who heard him wrote a limerick. There was a professor called Dodd whose name was exceedingly odd. He spelled, if you please, his name with three Ds, while one is sufficient for God. <laughs> now that's an, an essentially, a quintessentially English way of entering into theological debate. It has nothing to do with anything, but it's funny. It doesn't answer the technical issues, but, but everybody gets a little smirk out of it. Actually, the first serious repost against Dodd came in an article published in 1955 by someone who at that point was teaching at Westminster Theological Seminary. And then in the 1960s, there was an Australian by the name of Leon Morris who wrote a book called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, still in print. Morris would end up writing three books on the cross, but that's his most important. If you don't have it, and you think it ought to be in your bookshelf and you don't have the money, sell your shirt, buy the book. It's, it's a book of that kind of importance. It really is very important for understanding something of what the cross achieved. What both Roger um, Nicole, the chap at Westminster, and uh, Morris point out is that in the Old Testament, this propitiation language is often in contexts which do speak of God's wrath. The Bible in the Old Testament alone speaks of God's wrath more than 600 times. And the sacrifices are regularly recognized as that which turns aside God's wrath. That's propitiation. And in Romans 3, one of the great atonement passages, where the same word group is used here, as here, propitiation, Romans 3, 21 and following, which deals with the theology of the cross, Romans 3 is preceded by Romans 1.18 to 3.20, which section begins, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. In other words, you, you can't avoid the fact that the Bible talks a lot about the wrath of God. Well, Dodd wasn't stupid, of course. He recognized that. But what he said was the wrath of God is merely a a metaphorical way of, of, of saying that if you do bad stuff, bad stuff happens to you. There's no real wrath. There's no real indignation. There's no anger to it. It's just a kind of structure of the moral universe. You do bad stuff, and it's like karma. You know, bad stuff happens to you. There's no real wrath in it. There's no anger in it. It's just an impersonal working out of a, 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 impersonal karma. That's, that, that's all it is. And then suddenly God himself has become depersonalized. If God's wrath isn't real, maybe God's love isn't real either. What do you have left? No, what these men pointed out is that in the Bible, God stands over against us both in wrath and in love. He stands over against us in wrath because he's a holy God and we regularly defy him. We regularly sin against him. 
If he were to say, oh, I don't really care. You can sin against me if you like. I, I, I don't really care. But sooner or later, what would be called in question is his righteousness, his holiness. If God doesn't care when we do evil things, when we do wicked things, then, then God is no longer a really holy, righteous God. In the Bible, wrath is a function of his righteousness as it confronts sin. But the Bible also depicts God as standing over against us in love. Not because we're so lovely, not because we're so cute, not because we're so endearing, but because God is that kind of God. When we read, God so loved the world that he gave his son, we're inclined to think God's love must be awfully big because the world includes a lot of people. So it's, it's, it's pretty extensive that, that God should love the whole world. But in John's gospel, world regularly suggests not bigness, but badness. The world is portrayed in John's gospel as the whole moral order over against God. When we're told God so loved the world, we're not to think God's love must be great because the world is so big. We're supposed to think God's love must be magnificent because the world is so bad and he loves us anyway. He's that kind of God. So God stands over against us in wrath because of his own holiness, but he stands over against us in love because he's that kind of God. And out of love, God so loved the world that he gave his son. To take our place and thus set aside the ground of his own wrath, which is propitiation. In that sense, you can speak of God propitiating himself. Not in some sort of merely psychological way, but God provides the sacrifice in the person of his son by which the ground of his anger against us, namely our own sin, is canceled. And so the ground of the wrath is taken away and he himself is utterly propitious toward us. Do do, do you see? That means that in the Bible you can't have propitiation without expiation. That is, God is made propitious toward us by the sacrifice of the Son because the sacrifice cancels the sin. On the other hand, if you have expiation, then the God who stands over against us in righteous wrath becomes entirely propitious toward us. Expiation works out in propitiation. That's why the NIV prefers something that stands between the two. It says the sacrifice of atonement. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's trying to find an expression that pulls in both expiation and propitiation. Do do, do, do you see? That's what stands behind this strange expression. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, himself righteous, is our advocate. And he is not only the advocate, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who has canceled sin. He's the expiation. He is the one who has made God favorable toward us. He's the propitiation. Put it all together, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, my dear children, I'm not telling you that Christians sin so that you can get away with it, so that you have an excuse. I'm, I'm telling you this so that you won't sin. But if anybody does sin, because, because at the end of the day, we, we do, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, and he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is to say, 
over against the Gnostics, who claimed that there were certain categories of people that were mere animals. No hope for them. And other categories that were spiritually minded, and a nebulous category between the two. Potentially, Jesus' sacrifice is for all without distinction. This does not establish that all, without exception, are saved, but it does establish that, in principle, Christ's sacrifice is for all without distinction. All human beings are sinners, and all human beings need forgiveness, and only the atoning death of Christ will suffice. Now, if some of you want to bring up questions later about definite atonement and so on, um, I'm happy to deal with it in Q&A, but I'm not going to pick it up now. So, here then is the first entailment of the cross of Christ, <coughs> salvation because of Christ. Second, obedience to Christ, verses 3 to 6. This whole section still talks about love from time to time, for light from time to time. We'll pick it up again later in 2.9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister. But in this section, chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, there is there is no reference to light right in this section, but the light then recurs in verse 8, verse 9, and, and so on. We're still governed by chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And what John says here, in effect, is if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we remember that in him is no darkness at all, one of the things that falls out of this is obedience. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Now note carefully what 3 does not say. It does not say, We know him if we keep his commands. That is to say, it makes obedience somehow the causal effect of knowing God. It doesn't say that. It says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. That is, how will you have assurance that you actually do know God? One of the ways you gain assurance that you know God, one of the ways you gain assurance that you're a Christian is if your heart starts turning around so that you really do Love to please him. Now, this introduces the question of Christian assurance, which is one of the huge themes of this book. By the end of the book, we read chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, the book is largely wrapped around the question of how Christians may know that they have eternal life. So we'll come back to that one again and again and again and then try to put it into a pastoral package before we're finished um, in, in Sunday morning's uh, uh, final talk. Whoever says then, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. We're going back to the false claims again. This is very much like verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness... We lie. So also here in verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. In other words, 
The test is obedience. We are not only to keep his commands, we are to behave as he behaved. We cannot claim to abide in the light unless we walk in the light. We cannot legitimately claim to abide in him unless we behave like him. This is the same damning indictment that you find on the lips of the Lord Jesus himself at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you recall what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23? Jesus says, many will say to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name done many wonderful miracles? Then I will turn to them and say, depart from me, you who work iniquity. In other words, there is no escape from the demands of the gospel to live as Jesus lived. And perhaps that is especially important for those of us who really do believe that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. Because those who believe, rightly, that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, can eventually get so careless about how we live because we're relying so heavily on God's grace received by faith that we start thinking to ourselves, maybe not put quite as crassly as this, but nevertheless we start thinking to ourselves, hey, we're saved by grace. If I sin, well, after all, the Bible says I'm going to sin in any case. You know, no sweat. I just claim the promises of the gospel and press on from here. And so suddenly there's no shame to sin anymore. There's no, there's, there's no concern for holiness. There's, there's, there's carelessness. And somehow the gospel, the glorious gospel of Christ, of salvation by grace through faith, actually becomes an excuse for sin. There's got to be something wrong with that. There's got to be something wrong with that. Now how you put together this package of what the gospel is is not an easy question. We'll tease it out progressively as we work through this book. But on this score, John sounds very much like James. James chapter 2, verses 14 and following. James, who says, in effect, if you claim that you have faith, but show it in no works at all, your faith is in vain. It's, it's, it's useless faith. It's powerless faith. It's non-transforming faith. After all, James says, the devil himself believes in the resurrection of Jesus, believes in the deity of Jesus, believes in the truth of the gospel, but is not transformed. What's, what's, what's gone wrong? Faith has got to be more than mere believing that, believing certain truths, believing certain propositions. Once you've assented to them, then you have faith. The devil himself assents to them, but isn't transformed. Whatever else Christian faith is, it is something which actually transforms. So, that's the second entailment, obedience because of Christ. Third entailment, Verses 7 to 11, love because of Christ. So, first entailment of the truth that God is light and in him is no darkness at all is salvation because of Christ. Second entailment is (coughs) obedience to Christ. And the third entailment now is love because of Christ. Verses 7 to 11. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. The message? 
The message? Back to 1.5, this is the message we have heard. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So what I am telling you now about love is part of this message. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Now before we think through this uh, metaphor applied to love, this metaphor of light applied to love, it's worth reflecting a bit on old and new. Why does John say that what he's offering is not a new command but an old one? What does he mean by old and new? Some have argued that uh, the new commandment to love one another um, is uh, based on the fact that it's a new standard. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. So there's a new standard to it. Not just it's a command, but there's a new standard introduced by Jesus on the cross. Some have argued it's new because Jesus was the one who brought together the primacy of love for God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the primacy of loving your neighbor as yourself, and made them the two most important commandments. You recall that in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? And he says, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He brings together Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, wraps them up. And so Christian views of love are, are, are dependent upon this, this way of configuring all of love around God and our neighbor. Still others say that this commandment is new in the same way that God's mercies are new every morning, to use the language of Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23. Your faithfulness is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do, 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 do you see? So that although in one sense God's love and God's faithfulness are old, yet, yet you experience them newly day by day, day by day, day by day. Doctrinal Christianity, in other words, as Kamlish puts it, is always old, but experimental Christianity, we would say experiential Christianity, is always new. But I suspect in John's Gospel, although all those things that I've said are true, in John's Gospel and in John's first epistle, that's not, that's not the center of the understanding John has of love. no. Love is new in John's gospel because it is the characteristic mark of the Christian before a watching world. John 13, 34, and 35. We're to love one another. By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In this new age, this age of Jesus, this age of the gospel, this age of the dawning of the kingdom, this age of Christ, Love amongst Christians is the characteristic mark of the Christian before a watching world. In other words, where Christians snipe at each other and bite each other and destroy each other, <coughs> then as far as the world watching is concerned, we have nothing that's attractive. We're not reflecting anything beautiful or godly at all. But one of the ways in which Christians demonstrate the truth of the gospel is the way they care for one another. 
By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In other words, this commandment is new, not because it's never been offered before. It's shown in the Old Testament. But because now, under the Christian age, under the gospel, it is declared to be the characteristic mark of the Christian before a watching world. The old age is dying, we're told, but the new age is here. So I am writing you a new command, verse 8. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing, the darkness of the old age. The true light is already shining. Anyone then who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister in the darkness is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. In other words, the New Testament depicts the old age, the age from the fall on to the final judgment as coming to a place where it sort of exhausts itself and will pass out. And then overlapping on that is the dawning of the kingdom, this new age, which has already started. And we Christians somehow still belong to both ages. We're still part of this fallen, broken world. We don't have resurrection bodies, for example. Forgive me for interrupting, but does that tell me something, that bell? Do do I need to do something? Okay. (laughs) The new age has already dawned, and... And, and we belong to this new age where Christians will be tied to each other with transparent love. Someone wrote quite some time ago, ever since Christianity was preached, the Christian citizen has been a puzzle both to himself and to his rulers. By the elementary necessities of his creed, the Christian has been a man living in two worlds, In one, he has been a member of a national community. In the other, a community taken out of the nations. In one, he has been bound to obey and enforce the the laws of the state. In the other, to measure his conduct by standards not recognized by those laws and often inconsistent with them. This dualism has been made tolerable only by the prospect of reconciliation. That prospect is, again, an elementary necessity of the Christian creed. That is the reconciliation that comes at the end of the age when Jesus comes back. We believe that Jesus is returning. That's part of the Christian creed. Somehow, somewhere, the conflict of loyalties will end. The kingdoms of this world will pass. The kingdom of God will be established. We live with that tension. Even while we cry with Christians across every century, yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And all of this is tied to the truth that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He sends his light now, but we still live in an age of darkness. We have received the new birth. We do not yet have resurrection bodies. We have been born again, but we have not been perfected. We live in this tension before the consummation. Christ has come. The sacrifice has been paid. The Holy Spirit has been bequeathed. The new age has dawned. But the consummation is not yet. And in those tensions, we live and move and have our being. Now within that framework then, after having spelled out the entailments 
of the truth that God is light. John then offers some personal encouragement and warning. Here we'll go much faster. First, the encouragement. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Have you noticed in these verses that there's a threefold breakdown? I'm writing to you, dear children. Then I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young men. And then the whole thing is repeated in verse 14 with minor variations. So this threefold breakdown. Does John have in mind three groups? Children, fathers, young men. Or more plausibly, does he have in mind two groups? The first, dear children, is the overarching one. You see elsewhere, he constantly refers to all his readers as his dear children or his loved ones or his beloved, his dear children. So it seems to me that what he is saying is, I'm writing to you, dear children, writing to the whole lot. And now in particular, I'll break it down into two groups, the fathers and the young men. By this, he's not talking about those who are literally fathers and only fathers, and young men, only young men, and we're not worried about middle-aged men or um, very young little children, or we're not worried about women. That's not the idea at all. The idea is he looks at the Christian community as a whole, his dear children, and he says comprehensively, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You're back to the propitiation language. You're back to the atoning sacrifice language. Or repeat it again. Verse 14, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. You really do know him. Now break this down into two groups, he says. And the two groups he has in mind are experienced saints who have been around a long time, have walked with God a long time, have a lot of miles behind them. And younger Christians who are energetic and carry the burden of the day in the church and so on. Let's face it. In our local churches, where a church is well-balanced in terms of age distribution and so on, the people who are doing most of the work, teaching the Sunday school classes, visiting homes, catechizing, whatever your church particularly does, they're not the 80-year-olds. Those 80-year-olds, assuming that they really are converted and godly and have decades of Christian experience, they might be the prayer warriors of the church. But they don't have the energy to do the work anymore. That's for the younger people. So, so look how the breakdown comes. The fathers, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Or again, I write you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, repeated in verse 14. That is, there is a sense in which the senior saints have a certain kind of serenity and equanimity, a kind of one foot in eternity. Now, I know you can find some senior saints that are just crabby old people, bitter, bitter people. And you wonder if the gospel's in their lives at all. But where you find senior Christians who have walked with God for decades and they've been bereaved and they've, they've already faced two rounds of cancer and, and they're, they're, they're older, but, but, but nevertheless they've got one foot in eternity and they have a certain kind of contentment with Christ and a certain kind of faith and trust and, and maturity. Do you, do, do, do you see? You, you know him who is from the beginning, and as a result, their faith has become sort of anchored in eternity. But over against them are the younger ones. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In other words, John does not want to give the impression, as he writes to these Christians, 
that he thinks they're all a bunch of hypocrites who really are not walking in the light at all. He wants them to realize that in his assessment of them, they are Christians from the senior saints who have one foot in eternity already and really do know God to the junior saints who display by their living a certain kind of strength, a certain kind of active faith, a certain kind of hard work, a a demonstration of the power of the Spirit in their lives so that they have already overcome the evil one. He, he, He does not want to discourage them by his strong words. He sets up these strong lines in the previous verses. If you really are a Christian, you will be obedient. If you really are a Christian, you really love Christ and you really love fellow Christians. And so eventually a lot of Christians with with sensitive consciences, they think, oh, maybe I don't love Christians enough. Maybe maybe I'm not really saved either. Maybe I'm on the outside. Maybe maybe John's talking about me. Maybe, Maybe he thinks that I'm not really converted. And instead of that, John comes back and says, no, 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 I'm writing to you because you are converted. This is the evidence I see of it. In the senior saints, in the junior saints, this is the evidence I see. And then what he says is, there is a warning to be given, verses 15 to 17, but there is a contrast to be made between the Christs, the Christians, and the Antichrists. So let's take the warning first of all, and then the final the final um, antitheses between those who follow Christ and those who don't. The warning comes in two parts. First, the cosmic antitheses, dealing with the cosmos, the world, verses 15 to 17. Love for the world versus love for Christ, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So, love for the world versus love for God. They're two quite different things. And then a second cosmic antithesis, uh, namely, temporality versus eternality. That is, this world is temporal. The world and its desires pass away, verse 17. But with this new age already dawning, whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the question is, are you locked into the old world that passes away? Or are you locked into the new world, doing the will of God, living forever into the consummation? Those are the antitheses that John sets out. All right, love for the world versus love for God. I'm old enough to remember when Christians talked a lot about worldliness. Northern Ireland is sort of two or three decades behind much of the west, rest of the English-speaking Christian world. That's not all bad. Um, but it does mean that probably some of you talked about worldliness even in your youth, or if not in your parents' time. Um, whereas virtually nobody in the rest of the Western world talks much about worldliness anymore. Ah, there's some older-fashioned Christian churches here that still talk a bit about worldliness. What is worldliness? I was told, never drink, smoke, swear, or chew, and never go out with girls that do. (laughs) The chew, in case you're wondering, isn't bubblegum, it's tobacco. Um, You can see that this one came out of the deep south of the United States. Now, this was not the sum of all godliness, but... But but if you fell into any of these traps, it was the sum of all worldliness. Do you see? And and then worldliness is is construed as as um, breaking a whole lot of Christian taboos. 
Now, the problem with such definitions is that they gradually slide off into legalism. Provided you keep those rules, then you're a godly person. But if you're self-analytic at all, you realize that you can keep the rules and in your heart be a turmoil of lust and greed and selfishness and so on while keeping all the formal rules. Real worldliness outstrips mere rule-keeping or rule-breaking. Yet at the same time, having got rid of the legalist, of the legalism in much of the Western world, now we don't care very much about worldliness. And that means there are more and more Christians that are becoming comfortable with sin. That's not quite right either. John does want us to have an antithesis in mind. Don't love the world, he says. And if you do love the world, then love for God is not in you. You love one or you love the other. You can't love both. But what does he mean by world? He does not mean merely the physical world. You see, that's what the Gnostics would mean. Don't love anything to do with the physical world. You can't take a course in art appreciation because that's loving the world. You don't want to stand gazing at a Rembrandt for hours and hours and hours. You don't want to admire classical music. That that all belongs to the world. You don't want to enjoy picking up a new skill. uh, or You you don't want to go and look at the mountains as you hike um, on a summer vacation through through the uh, lower Alps. You don't want to do that because that's part of this world. That's not the issue at all. He tells us what is in the world. What is the world as he sees it? Everything in the world... Verse 16, and he tells us, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh. That does not simply mean sexual desires, but desires of the old fallen nature. Everything that arises from within. Greed, sloth, cheap sensuality, gluttony. All the desires that arise from the old nature, than the desire of the eyes. That is, temptations assaulting us, not from within, from our own makeup, but from without, the things we see outside that we so badly want. So it's Eve looking at the tree and saying, well, she sees, perceives it to be an, an attractive fruit, and according to the words of the serpent, uh, with the potential to make her wise. It's David looking at Bathsheba, it's Achan looking at, at the, 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 the garments from Babylon with silver attached and, and so on. So it's not only objects of prurient interest, but the Roman circus, the amphitheater, the escapism, mere entertainment, pleasure all the time, so that that becomes what we want all the time. Robert Law dis- defines this category as the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. And then the pretentiousness of life. The pride of life. This is the desire to outshine others. Worldliness may not reside in things, but it does reside in our concentration on things, especially if those things in our mind make us important. The bigger car or the bigger garden or the bigger house or for ministers the bigger library in fact it includes even that exceptionally deadly form of pride that apes humility I'm more humble than you are 
There is a certain kind of pride bound up with fake spirituality. The whole world becomes a vanity fair. You know how it happens. Two people get together. They start talking about what's going on. One of them says something about their prayer life and so on. So you immediately feel as if you've got to tell an even bigger story about your prayer life. It's part of the pretentiousness of life, isn't it? It can happen in the spiritual arena. It can happen in church. It can happen in relationships and friendships. That's what's in the world. And John says, don't love the world. If you love God, you won't love the world. And this world, with all of its pretentiousness, is passing away. It's ultimately damned. The NEB, which is what Dodd was responsible for, the New English Bible, actually has this verse nicely paraphrased. Everything the world affords, all that panders to the appetites or entices the eye, all the glamour of its life. And, verse 17, temporality versus eternality, this world passes away. I cannot read that line without thinking of the old Negro spiritual, which is much more powerful in the North American context with its history of slavery in the U.S. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. But the same point has been taught by the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. Don't lay treasures up for yourself on earth where moth and rust corrode and where thieves do break through and steal. After all, the richest man on earth will take out exactly what I take out. Absolutely nothing. (coughs) The world, in John's sense, passes away. In the words of Myers, Whoso has felt the spirit of the highest cannot confound nor doubt him nor deny. Yea, with one voice, O world, though thou deniest, stand thou on that side, for on this side stand I. Do you see? There's an antithesis here. You make some fundamental choices. And you make those choices again and again and again and again, and you begin to distance yourself from the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh and the pretentiousness of life. You watch your speech because you love God and you love your fellow believers and you love your neighbor as yourself. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul writes in Romans 12, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then finally, the personal antitheses, verses 18 to 25. Christians versus Antichrists. Dear children, this is the last hour. Now, I sort of sketched out that sort of old world which brings us to the consummation. We're in it, whether we like it or not. Then lapping over it is the new world. But this period between the onset of the new and the consummation, when the old passes away finally, and the new enters into consummation, resurrection existence, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, that whole period is in the New Testament regularly referred to as the last hour. 
or the last times, or the last time. In other words, it's the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In fact, that's the argument here, isn't it? Dear children, this is the last hour. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. John's not denying that. There is a final outbreak under an Antichrist at the end of the age. But even now, many Antichrists have come. That's how you know it's the last hour. In other words, in this last hour, what you have is the coming of Christ and reacting against him, many Antichrists. So for this whole age, this last hour, this this end of the old age, this dawning of the new age, when they overlap, before the consummation, it's characterized by two huge things. Christ is here. Christ has come. The new age has started. And Antichrists are everywhere, breaking out in response against him. That's how you know it's the last times, the last age, the last hour. Now, in this particular case, who are these antichrists? Who they are is varies a bit from book to book in the New Testament. But here, he says certain things about who the antichrists are, and then, by contrast, what Christians are like. So, Who are these antichrists? Well, verse 19, they fail to pass the test of perseverance. They were believers in good standing in the church. People who had been baptized, accepted as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, members in good standing, but they went out from us, verse 19. Listen to this. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. In other words... John says that real Christians stick. So that if they don't stick, their very departure shows that they couldn't have belonged to us properly in the first place. Now, elsewhere, the Bible acknowledges that there is such a thing as temporary backsliding. So we'll have to return to this and think about it a bit more. We're back to the question of assurance. These people were baptized members in good standing in the local church. They went out from us. They, they had been, in that sense, of us. They, 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 they were viewed as brothers and sisters in Christ, but now their going showed that that wasn't the case after all, because if it had been the case, they would have remained with us. Real Christians, by definition, stick. But there are some who make profession of faith, then leave, and become the harshest, meanest, severest attackers of Christianity on the face of the earth today. They become real antichrists. And when that happens, John says, it demonstrates they couldn't really have been of us in the first place because if they had been, they would have remained. It's their going that shows that they couldn't really have belonged to us. Now, we'll come back to that one again and again in this book. It's very important for beginning to understand what Christian assurance looks like. So they fail the test of perseverance. And, moreover, a little farther on, they deny both the Father and the Son because they've got their doctrine of the Son so wrong. They don't really understand God. John is clear-sighted in a healthy way. The opposing views are not complementary insights. But truth versus error, verses 21 and 27. The false theology is not merely defective, it's diabolical. It damns. It's frightening. It displays that people do not really know God. 
By contrast, the believers in these verses, they are taught by the Holy One. Verses 20 and 21. You have an anointing from the Holy One, probably a reference to the Holy Spirit. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and believe that no lie comes from the truth. So they are taught by the Holy Spirit himself. And all Christians, we're told, have this this spirit-imparted knowledge. As Paul puts it when he writes to the Corinthians, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us, gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. We have this built-in knowledge that is taught to us by the Holy Spirit himself. And in consequence, we do persevere. Verse 24, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. In other words, true Christians, by definition, do persevere. Moreover, true Christians confess Jesus as the Christ. 23b, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. They alone are heirs of eternal life. Our age is characterized by a love of fuzziness. What I mean is that many of us, especially those of us who are under 35 or 40, don't like sharp edges, don't like the angular. Who wants to say that somebody isn't a Christian? Yeah, but they're so sincere in their belief. Don't you think the proto-Gnostics were sincere in their belief? But even talking along those lines makes us just a bit uncomfortable. It makes us nervous. It sounds supercilious. It shows that deep down we must be bigots because we think that somebody else is wrong but if we absorb from our culture the view that everybody is right and it's always wrong to say that anybody's wrong that's the one thing that's wrong then you cannot possibly square your theology with what the New Testament says which depicts some beliefs as so wrong It excludes you from the possibility of knowing God. It puts you on the side with the devil himself. How to hold such views and get them across in our generation is one of the biggest challenges of the age. Because to claim things like the exclusiveness of Christ just sounds terribly right-wing and narrow-minded and bigoted. In our culture, which is convinced that the one wrong thing to say is that somebody else is wrong. Now, we'll come back to that as we tease this out a little farther in the book itself. But make no mistake, that's what John says. John forces us to think antithetically. That truth and error are opposites. That gospel truth can be known and believed and lived out to claim to know it and not live it out is a damning fault to disbelieve it 
is equally a damning fault. Let us pray. So grant to all of us, Lord God, a willingness not only to understand your most holy word, but to think your thoughts after you, to conform our ways of viewing the world to the revelation that you have given us in your dear Son, mediated to us through the pages of this book. We beg this mercy of you in Jesus' name. Amen.